Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation and I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the show today Doug Knoll, who has written a book recently called Elusive Peace. And we're going to be having a very interesting, wide-ranging discussion today about peace and why it is so elusive. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. And I believe that you've already won an award with the book. I did. I won uh, the uh, international, uh, the International Institute for Conflict Prevention and Resolution International Peace and Justice Book Award for 2011. And well, was congratulations back in New York City a couple of weeks ago for the award. It was great. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So I'd love to hear first of all how a trial lawyer <laughs> became a peacemaker. Um, well, I think I think you and the audience will resonate with this. It was a it turned out to be a spiritual journey. Uh, I I I um, completely unrelated to my law practice. I have a lot of other interests and skills I've developed over the years, and um, one of the skills I developed was being a ski instructor, teaching skiing. And I wanted to attain my highest level of certification, and it was having a difficult time as a part-time instructor getting enough skiing in to be able to really up my level to the highest level that's necessary to pass this very difficult three-day exam. So I decided to take up the martial arts. And to make a long story short, five years after I took up the martial arts, I got my second-degree black belt, and my teacher said, you're done here, Uh, you're too aggressive, you're too arrogant, uh, you're a trial lawyer. You're, you, you know, no one can intimidate you. You really need to go learn a different martial art. Go learn Tai Chi. So uh, I got kicked out, not because of anything <laughs> I did wrong, just because my teacher had the wisdom to recognize that um, he could teach me much more, but that my soul was re- really requiring a different, a different type of instruction. So I started learning Tai Chi, and in Tai Chi there are two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are the stronger you are. And the second is, the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Now, Tai Chi is, the, is where all martial arts originates from. And Chi, of course, is energy. And so I got introduced to subtle energy. 
um, and over over a period of study for three or four years, I began to understand and embody those paradoxes in my body and in my martial arts practice as I learned Tai Chi, and it slowly began to affect me in terms of how I looked at the world. And at the same time, I was introduced to a form of energetic healing known as pranic healing, which was taught at that time by the late Master Cha Kok Sui. And uh, being a skeptic, I've been meditating all my life, and so I was familiar with subtle energy, but, you know, you hear a lot of claims about energy healing, and, it, you know, so you t- I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an empiricist. So, But anyways, I took these classes, and sure enough, it worked. It was teachable, replicable, duplicable, and I got some amazing results as a healer, and it turns out that I had a knack for healing. So I'm studying Tai Chi. I'm start studying Arhatic Yoga under Master Cho Koksui and becoming a certified pranic healer. And in my other life, I'm a trial lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so there's this discontinuity between what I was called to do with my soul and what I was doing to make a living. One day I was standing in the courtroom cross-examining somebody, and the thought just came to me out of the blue, what the hell am I doing in here? <laughs> and so well, after that, that trial, really... I went on a, a week-long river trip and spent the week really contemplating. I do a lot of whitewater rafting with friends, and so I was on my own boat all by myself with my friends and their rafts downriver down from me, powering through these big Class three, Class four rapids in Idaho, thinking about and contemplating how many people I had really served as a trial lawyer for, for some 20-plus years. And at the end of that trip, I made the decision that um, I wasn't going to go another 20 or 30 years as a professional lawyer, profession, a professional practice, and only have helped 15 people at the end of a 40- you know, or 50-year career. But I had no idea what I was going to do. And I really wasn't thinking about changing careers. I just was now open. The universe had now opened for me after this trip and these experiences. And sure enough, uh, I live in the mountains of California, south of Yosemite, and I was driving down out of the mountains to my office, where my law office, where I was a senior partner in a major law firm, and uh, listening to our local public radio station. And sure enough, the one and the only time this public service announcement was announced, I listened to it. And the public service announcement was for the introduction of a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at. Um, the local private university, which is a, the West Coast Mennonite University based in Fresno, Fresno Pacific University. Only time they ever played that PSA on the radio was that one time. And, I, and it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I happened to be tuned into the station that was playing it. Go figure. So, of course, that intrigued me. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Mennonites. I didn't know anything about peacemaking. Uh, to me, it was all about war as a litigator, hardcore litigator, and a secondary black belt. And, but obviously, I'd undergone some changes with my Tai Chi and, and energy training. Um, I went down, talked to them, signed up, and uh, I started my coursework in August of that year. And after the second day of the first class, it struck me, this is my calling, uh, to become a peacemaker. This is what is missing from the law, the idea of how to, how to respond to conflict in a holistic, nonviolent, collaborative way rather than and through this process we call trial law or violence or whatever method people choose that, it, that happens to be non-peaceful. So I went back to the law firm that afternoon after class, and I handed our firm administrator my business card, and I said, John, I need some new business cards. And he said, really? Yeah. And I said, no, I just need new business cards. And I handed him my card, and it said Douglas E. Noel, and under that where it said attorney at law, I'd taken a blue pen and drawn a line through it, and underneath that I put peacemaker. 
And he looked, he looked at me and said, what? I said, yeah, I need some business cards that say peacemaker below. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. I'm going to be a peacemaker. He said, I can't do that. <laughs> that, that we got to go to the, it's got to go to the executive committee. This is, this is too radical. So of course we had numerous partner meetings over, over a period of, uh, of 18 months while I was working on a master's degree. And, uh, the upshot was that I left the firm under amicable terms. They just weren't quite evolved enough or ready, ready for the idea of a lawyer turned peacemaker. So I left, uh, I left the firm and about $10 million on the table in 2000 and opened my mediation and peacemaking practice in, um, in the fall, in November 1st, 2000, and really have never looked back. So that's, that's how it happened. And I just started, I got my master's degree, published my first book, uh, and started really looking at how to help people resolve conflicts in the most peaceful way possible and not through the, uh, you know, touchy-feely, kumbaya, sit around the campfire singing, but really the hardcore stuff of what's it take to deal with two people or three people who would rather have AK-47s and shoot each other than sit at the table. The last thing they want to do is sit across the table and talk to each other. How do I handle that? How do I manage that? How do I get them to come to the table? And once I got them at the table, how do I engage them in a discussion that leads them to a place where they can decide that they would rather have peace rather than war? And that's what my whole life is about. Well, so let's talk about that. How do you actually achieve that? Well, um, the the it depends upon the kind of conflict that I'm asked to to to, to engage in. But but fundamentally, um, I have a we human being as human beings uh, and as spiritual beings, we have a deep capacity for peace. And our souls, of course, are innately peaceful. But our, the biology of our physical bodies is that our default, our default mechanism is to conflict. And unless we become conscious about that default mechanism and, and the behaviors and the feelings and the emotions and the somatic uh, experiences we have in our physical body, we will always default to violence to solve a conflict. So the first thing to do as a peacemaker is to recognize that and, and start educating people and pre- presenting them with choices. And, and, you know, we only have four choices about in any conflict, four choices about how to go about resolving the conflict. And after I go through these four choices and explain to people what the four choices are, and which is for many, most people, it's the first time they've ever heard of these four choices, um, they almost always choose peacemaking. I've never really ever had anybody turn me down, even people who are just violently opposed to the idea of peacemaking. When I show them the consequences of their four choices, um, they almost always choose peacemaking because every human being wants peace. It's just they don't know how to get there. So what are those four choices? The, um, first choice, coercion. One person has the power to decide the conflict over another. So it could be a parent over a child, a teacher over a student, employer over an employee. It could be a government over a minority. Um, this, is a, this, is, this is where most of our conflicts arise. It is the conflict choice of default for most human beings because we learn very early on, about two years old, that um, he or she who has the most power wins. And as a consequence, uh, people default to coercion, using power, coercing coercing or forcing another person to bend to your will as a means of resolving conflict. But as we all know, it's a very poor way to resolve conflict. Uh, It's very inefficient. It almost never works, except in emergencies, and it almost always breeds more conflict. The second way we can resolve conflict is to go to an outside authority. 
So this could be two kids going to mom or dad, two, two students going to a teacher, two employees going to a boss or supervisor, two, two parties going to a, a court, a judge or a jury. Um, that's a good way to resolve conflicts when the outside authority can make a binding decision that the parties will accept. Uh, but if you're talking about litigation, for example, it's extremely expensive, uncertain, and the remedies of a court of law are extremely limited and inadequate for dealing with most human conflict. And once you're outside of the rule of law, there's no outside authority that can render a binding decision, which is, for example, what we have in um, in international relations. There are there is no binding, there's no authority that can bind nations to to agreements. It's all got to be consensual. The third, so, we, so the third choice we have is the mediation or peacemaking model or choice. And in that, in that choice, people decide themselves to step into the power circle. And they bring in an outsider who is not there to make decisions for them, but to help them guide them through a process that will allow them to make the best choices they can make in the face of great risk and uncertainty and fear and mistrust. And the key, to, the key to mediation and peacemaking is that it's voluntary, it's consensual, and it's, it's self-empowering. No one is telling anybody else what to do. People come into the circle because they want to, and they can leave any time they want. And when they make, this, make a decision to resolve a conflict, it's because it's a mutual decision, not because the decision is being forced on them either by the other side or by some outside authority. So, Doug, we're actually coming to our first break here, so we'll break and we'll return with Doug Noel after this break, talking about elusive peace. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. The new home for visionary positive change. 7th Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just a reminder to go to my website, www.petertung.com. Lots of information for you there. My newsletter will be out within the next uh, couple of days for February, talking about our Capricorn workshop and some of the really important information that's been coming through in this last uh, few weeks about our current situation and working with the fifth dimensional realms. And as well, the uh, www.myheartcenteredjourney.com, where we have an Ambassadors of Light 
class tomorrow evening at 5.30, Thursday at 5.30, where I'm going to be talking about the energies and qualities of Aquarius and the Year of the Dragon and uh, one or two other bits and pieces, as well as all the other information and uh, little treats that are available for you at myheartcenteredjourney.com. I have with me today Doug Knoll, who is going to be talking in the next segment about elusive peace and so why it's so hard for us to, to reach. So, Doug, just before the break, you were talking about the four choices that we have uh, right. in conflict. Right. So just to review quickly, the first choice is coercion. The second choice is some kind of outside authority. The third choice is peacemaking or mediation, where we're bringing in a third party to help people but doesn't have any power to make decisions. The last choice is negotiation which is where we just sit down and work out the, the problems ourselves. And we're, we're fortunate as human beings in that most of the time negotiation works really well. Um, uh, but as we all know, we've all experienced conflict. There are times when people feel like they're being disrespected or they sense stubbornness or uh, injustice. And so the next question is, after negotiation fails, discussion and dialogue fails, where do you move? The default of a human brain is to move to coercion, option number one. And as peacemakers, what we really try to do is say option number one will almost never work. Let us try option number three first, which is the peacemaking mediation model, where we bring in a third person who's skilled in managing emotions and decision-making theory and neuroscience and social neuropsychology and anthropology. I mean, all the, it's a multidisciplinary course of study to become a, a really effective peacemaker. Um, let's bring in somebody like that who can help people sort through the issues and, and basically do for them what's, what they are no longer able to do for the, themselves because of the escalation, escalated nature of the conflict. Before you move on, though, let's just talk for a moment about the brain structure and, and when you talked about the default to coercion. Mm -hmm. Just tell us about how the brain functions in those circumstances. The, um, our, our, our brain, we, of course, have inherited over uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years of evolution in the, of, of our physical bodies. We, have, uh, we, have, we are extremely sensitive to our environment, and our brains are designed to alert us to, to dangers in the environment, and, and, we're, and, and there are parts of our brain they're about 50, uh, to, to be very gross, I mean, in a gross way, not a uh, neurophysiologically uh, or anatomically correct way. There are about 50 submodules in the brain, give or take. And these are modules, if you can imagine them metaphorically, as different computers. And they don't, they, sometimes they talk to each other pretty well, but, are, but they are connected to each other, but, it, but they are also disconnected from each other. And what happens is that uh, one module can dominate another. So we do have a module that that is an early warning system. And either a memory or something in the environment can trigger this module. And it will do one of, it, it can only do two things. It can do one thing, and, and of that one thing, it's a binary kind of decision. And that is, it judges what's going on as either good or bad. So as we're sitting here talking, and, and people are listening to us, there's a part of their brain that's saying good, good, bad, 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 good, 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 bad, 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 bad. And it's just making judgments every moment. It's completely unconscious. We can't control it. It's com and we're not even aware that it's happening because it doesn't penetrate our consciousness. Now, um, if, I'm walking up, if I'm walking up my driveway here in the mountains and, and it's a summer night and I see a, a squirrely shadow across the driveway as the moon shines through the trees, um, I leap back. And my heart rate increases, I start to perspire, I breathe heavily, and it's a startle reflex. 
and about three quarters, it's exactly three quarters of a second later, 750 milliseconds, it, my prefrontal cortex is able to finish processing all the information, and what could have been a rattlesnake in front of me is actually a broken oak branch that has fallen on the driveway, and that's the squiggly shadow. But if some part of my brain had not recognized the potential of that squiggly shadow as being a rattlesnake, I could have gotten bitten. And in fact, our predecessors, those who snuggled up to saber-toothed tigers 250,000 or 300,000 or a million years ago, um, were quickly cleaned out of the gene pool. And those of our predecessors who were a little bit paranoid and really hypersensitive to dangers in the environment um, survived to pass their genes on down to us. And so we have inherited genes for living in an environment that existed millions of years ago but does not exist in a complex technological society that we live in. And yet we have the same primitive brain function as, 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 as hominids did millions of years ago. And it, this brain function, when it becomes triggered, dominates, dominates our consciousness. The prefrontal cortex shuts down, the emotional systems in the midbrain light up, we, and we become, essentially become unconscious. And that's when we go into fear reaction, and that's when we automatically default to choice number one, using coercion, violence, to solve a problem. And that's the problem, that's the link between, one of the huge links between being a conscious person and being unconscious. If you're unconscious, you just allow your brain reactions to dominate your physical body willy-nilly. When you become conscious, you become aware of the fact that your physical body is triggered and you are able to make conscious choices about how you want to respond to what your body is doing and how it's responding. And the, the whole concept of peacemaking is I become the prefrontal cortex for people. <laughs> when they're highly emotional, highly emotional, highly escalated, they can't think clearly anymore. And I'm there to help them t basically talk them off the window ledge and bring them to the table. And as they talk with their enemy, they become more triggered. They get triggered just by being across the table from somebody triggers you. The fear reaction kicks in, and I have to go through this whole process of helping people de-escalate themselves to get them to a level where they can, they can actually start to sit down and talk and listen to each other and then start to solve their problem. It's very difficult to do on your own. So when you're dealing with people at a, at a very high level, say at a, a, an international peacemaking situation, mm -hmm. and they obviously have people who are speaking on behalf of their country, let's say, right. peacemaking, that these, these triggers are still going off for these people. Absolutely. They're human beings. They have human brains. They respond in exactly the same way. In some, in some ways, it's a little bit more complex because they are representatives. It's not their conflict. It's their national conflict or their group conflict, and they are simply representing. And they may have, they, they usually have intense conflicts in their, in their constituency group that they have to manage. Plus, they're dealing with the, the primary conflict with their opposing party. So it becomes more complex but they are still processing the information in exactly the same way as any other human being on the planet. And so obviously you, you can recognize, presumably as an experienced mediator, when people drop into that triggered unconscious place. Yes, it's, so it's very obvious. Once you learn what to look for, it's very obvious what's going on. You can see it, you, and I'll never forget the first time I saw it. It was like... You could see this. It's like uh, metaphorically fl switches flip, and you <laughs> you say, "Whoa, there it is!" And you can listen to them and watch their watch their body language, pick up their emotional the emotional experience they're having in the moment. And you can it's very obvious, but it takes training. 
um, you know, most people can't see this because they haven't had the, the training and experience to see it, and so they completely miss it. And that's why chaos looks so chaos looks or conflict looks so chaotic to people because they no, don't know what to look for. The behaviors are very, very well known. The behavioral patterns are extremely predictable, um, and that's why I say there's no difference between a, a conflict between six years old six year olds in the sandbox and a conflict between, for example, the United States and the Iranians. It's the same basic stuff. Yeah, it's, the consequences are much bigger, and maybe there's a little bit more layer of complexity, but when you get down to the human brain, it's the same process. So how do you uh, get people back then from that place of, of being triggered and becoming unconscious in, in, in their reactions in conflict and fear and anger and so on? The most, you... the most important tool uh, in the Peacemaker's Toolbox is, 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 is empathy and creating an empathic connection with the parties that are in conflict. And the peacemaker has to do this. And, and, the, and the simplest, most direct way into the brain to do that is through what is known as affect labeling. Um, this is based on work that neuroscientist Matthew Lieberman has done at UCLA. Affect labeling is very easy to describe. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to do. And basically all it is is if you, you Peter, and I are having a conversation and you're having an emotional experience, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're feeling betrayed, you feel a sense of injustice, you feel insecure, fearful, whatever negative emotional experience you're having in the moment. When I affect label, all I do is tell you what, you're, what I'm seeing. So I'll say, Peter, you look frustrated right now. You're angry. You, 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 know, you, you feel like you've been betrayed. You're experiencing a deep injustice right now. You are fearful. You feel abandoned. Whatever it might be, whatever I can read off of your emotional data field. And just by saying it that way, notice I'm not using I statements, I'm saying you are experiencing. It's a declarative statement. I'm not even asking a question. Even if I get it wrong, you would Peter say, Well, I'm not feeling betrayed, but I'm really I'm really angry because uh yada 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 and I'll say, Okay, so you're really angry. And you really felt like you really feel like you've been betrayed. Yeah, I feel like I've really been betrayed. And when you get that, yeah, I feel like or and three nods of the head or a yeah, 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 which is all unconscious, and every human being does this, then you know, okay, I've got it. And you can, well, as soon as you hit it, as soon as you hit the emotional experience that they're having, they completely decompress. I was, I was at a pre, pre-mediation media, meeting yesterday with a, a, a businesswoman in Los Angeles. I'm mediating uh, a dispute for her next week, and I did this. She was really escalated, and I started ethic labeling and I hit it. It took me about 30 seconds to find it. I found it completely de-escalated her and the whole tenor of the conversation changed like within 30 seconds. And all of a sudden where she'd been very resistant to me and kind of pushing back and suspicious of me and suspicious of the idea of peacemaking, as soon as I created that empathic connection, it was like I, cre- I went right to her heart. I went to her heart and her head at the same time connected and she got it. And all of a sudden she said, okay, You've got. You understand me now. I can trust you. And that's so how you do it. it. It's it's really using key words that have a connection to that person's feelings. It to to enable them to decompress. Exactly. What Lieberman found out in his in his studies, his his imaging studies, was that when people are having an emotional experience, the emotional centers of the brain light up, and the prefrontal cortex, which is our executive function, planning, and rational part of our brains, basically shuts down it becomes inhibited. Somehow, and we don't know what the mechanism is yet, somehow when we tell people what their emotional experience is, it somehow re 
uh, activates the prefrontal cortex and it inhibits or, 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 or um, calms down the emotional centers of the brain. We're not quite sure why it happens, but it's been demonstrated in the imaging labs that that's exactly what happens. So just by being present with somebody, being, and of course to do this you have to be completely centered in your own body and your own spirit, uh, which is again a form of consciousness. You can help another person find their own center just by affect labeling. It's that simple. Very powerful. Uh, We're actually coming up to our uh, next break, Doug, so I want you to actually talk after the break about uh, the, the qualities and the internal skills that you need to have to actually do this work. Obviously, they're pretty profound and important. Okay. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Listening on a higher dimension. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Have with me today Doug Knoll, who has recently written an award-winning book, Elusive Peace. Doug, if anybody wants to get the book or to connect with your work, how do, they, how do they make contact with you? Probably the easiest way is to go to the book website, Elusive, E-L-U-S-I-V-E, Peace, that's all one word, ElusivePeace.com. And uh, that will send you to links to Amazon, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble to buy the book, either in, a, in the hardbound paper version or the ebook version, Kindle or Nook versions. Um, and there is an email link there if people want to contact me or my publicist via email, and I respond to all emails. Elusivepeace.com. Great. Now, just before the break, you mentioned about the, uh, the, in, the sort of internal spirit of requirement for the mediators themselves, and this show is called Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation, and it may not have been totally obvious to our listeners the connection between the work that you do and this show. So I'd love to hear you talk about that right sure. now. So to be an effective peacemaker, you really have to operate it. Through, you have to have mastery over three things. At the most basic level, you have to have mastery over your physical body, um, which basically translates to high levels of emotional intelligence because, because your, your brain is like everybody else's as a peacemaker, and it's very easy for you to get sucked into the con, conflict vortex 
and to become physically triggered yourself. So you have to be consciously aware of your own internal somatics, your, what your physical body is doing, and your own emotional state. Um, and that just takes practice, and obviously contemplative practice through meditation, yoga, tai chi, helps to find, find that physical center. At the next level is, at the mental level, you have to have, uh, to be, work at the, top, at the very highest levels of this, is multidisciplinary training. I have two graduate degrees in this, a law degree and a master's degree. Um, you have to have a pretty strong working knowledge in a number of dis- different disciplines, including neurosocial psychology, anthropology, sociology, conflict theory, behavioral economics, uh, decision-making theory. I, and so the list goes on. There's a huge amount of cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary academic literature that you need to have plus experience. And then at the highest level is the spiritual level. And if you think think about um, energy fields and you've got... Um, your chakra systems, people who are who, people who are overdeveloped spiritually and underdeveloped in the in the physical realm. If you can imagine looking at the uh, an outline of a physical body, what you will see is a cone, and the cone will start at at the heart chakra or perhaps at the at the uh, solar plexus chakra, and you'll see the the cone go up and it'll get to the above the crown and it'll be a very broad high crown and, and there'll be almost a very small, it'll be an hourglass, but the hourglass will have a bigger triangle at the bottom and the lower triangle at the base. If you're looking pe- for, at people who are spiritually or energetically less uh, spiritual and more, more in the physical realm, it's just exactly the opposite. You'll see a huge triangle coming out from the solar plexus, growing around the, the base chakra, and then expanding out at the bottom, and you'll see a very narrow, small triangle going above through, through the crown chakra. Um, all right, well, there are advantages and disadvantages to each of these energy systems, but, but the, what, what is interesting about both of them is they're, they're both out of balance. So to be a peacemaker, you have to have both. You ha- instead of having uh, an hourglass-looking energy system when you look at the chakras, you have to have a column. And it has to be wide, it has to be high, extending above the crown chakra, and it has to be deep, going below the base chakra, deep into the center of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the earth. You have to be grounded because you're dealing in a physical reality. You have to have a high spiritual uh, connection because you're dealing with the higher selves of the people that you're, you're connecting with. So you have to connect. Sometimes you have to connect with them at the, at the dimension of their higher selves because they will not physically be able to work with you um, because of their physical bodies in the physical realm. So at a spiritual level, you have to have all of this working for you. Now, what's really interesting is that we never talk about this. <laughs> I don't teach it. I don't talk about it uh, because most of the people that I'm working with are not, are not spiritual people. They may be religious people. They may come from a religious tradition and they, they're evangelical about their beliefs, but they are not spiritual. And so we just have to, as peacemakers, have to be conscious about the spiritual dimension and how we have to maintain our own balance and make, make sure that our energy systems are aligned um, deep, broad, and tall, and connected to our own source and to the source of others so that we can work in all dimensions at all levels while we're doing the peacemaking work. But the pragmatic part of it is that's, that's what's going on in the, if, in the subtle realms, but the work is also done, of course, in the physical realm where we're actually talking with people, managing their emotions, working with their neurophysiology subtly through how we act and behave and how we respond to, in the moment to what's going on in the room as we're talking to people. 
Now, as you say, you're, you're, you're a human being as well. So when you are feeling yourself getting caught up in the emotions that are happening around you, which obviously there's some very heavy-duty intensity around in some of the circumstances that you work, what do you actually do to, to manage that? Obviously, you've got to be conscious of it to begin with. Right. So what I, the thing that I watch for in my own physical body is my face getting red. If I start to feel my face flushing, if I start to catch myself interrupting people, if I start to feel a tightness in my chest and anxiety, I know that I, my physical body has been triggered. And so, uh, I, first of all, I try to calm my physical body down by just acknowledging that I'm having an emotional experience, take a couple of deep breaths to, to, to physically slow down, uh, slow down my emotional reaction. I smile. It's amazing when you smile how that triggers the physical body. And then I connect with my higher source. I make a physical, I mean, I make an image of connecting to source. And that, all of that takes about 15 seconds. And that almost always grounds me back to where I need to be. Um, when I don't do that, I'm, I am not doing a very good job as a peacemaker. And I've learned over the years, that, I mean, this did not come overnight. This came with a lot of experience and a lot of mistakes. Um, but even, now I'm getting to the point where I can sense it, I know what to do, I do it, and I'm, and I'm good. And when people, and I'm getting less and less triggered in the room. In other words, when people are starting to act out and behave and scream and shout and yell and in some cases pull weapons, um, you know, I'm able to maintain balance in that moment and react appropriately uh, to what's in front of me. So you've actually been in a situation where weapons have been pulled out. It's, yeah, it's gotten potentially violent. Wow. And so you mentioned earlier meditation for mediation. Yeah. So I guess uh, that you do that practice at some other time so you can bring it into play of at course. the critical time. Of course. I mean, the reason you engage in contemplative practice is to go quiet so you can go inward, learn how to be in a centered, centered silent place, um, you know, if I'm doing energetic meditations, then, then the idea, of course, is to cleanse and, and, and expand my energy fields. Um, but then there are other contemplative practices where all you're trying to do is go in and be silent and be still to, to learn how to be, maintain that sense of centeredness at all times. So there are, you know, a variety. In our hardic practice, there are six or seven different types of meditations, each of which you practice in order to develop a certain aspect of, of your spiritual being. So, Doug, tell us about uh, an example of a, of a significant world-level event that you've been involved in and, and made a difference towards peace. Well, I'd like to be able to say that I, I have been able to do that, but I haven't. Uh, I, have, I have observed what led me to write Elusive Peace was the very fact that I could not find any examples since the collapse of the Soviet Union where I felt that international peacemakers and mediators had done a good job. And, uh, you know, I'm a... I'm not in government, I'm not in public service, I'm not certainly not in the foreign service, and I'm not involved in politics. So I, other than as a practitioner and a person who is, uh, looks at this in a fairly deep way, I'm not, I have never really been in a position where I can affect an international conflict. And in, in, and in fact, I would probably be culturally inappropriate in, in, in many types of conflicts to, to be there. Um, Having said that, though, I have also observed and studied the, the efforts of other people around the world, some of them Nobel Peace Laureates, some of them extremely well-known in international news, try to mediate a dispute and actually make things worse. Uh, and that, to me, is unacceptable. We have the knowledge, we have the skill, we have the ability 
to do effective peacemaking. And my my view is that if 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 we're going if we really want a peaceful world, that doesn't mean the absence of conflict. That just means we're going to use nonviolent means to resolve conflict rather than violent means, because we're always going to have conflict. Uh, if we want a a peaceful world, then we need to have foreign diplomats and the people who are doing this mediation, whether retired generals or special envoys or political leaders uh, or foreign ministers, they need to go back to school and learn how to do this work. Because uh, otherwise it's like sending an oncologist into the trauma center on a Friday night and said, here, run the trauma center. Highly skilled at what they do, highly knowledgeable in many areas, but totally and grossly incompetent um, to manage the trauma room or to manage an intractable deep conflict. Wow, so that's, uh, yeah, I can see what, so a lot of people get put in those positions where actually they don't have the skills to, to actually resolve them. Exactly. They think they do. And that's part of the problem is, is, unfortunately, people who go into foreign service or become political elites or military elites, because they have become elite, they think they know everything. And they have a certain arrogance about them. And they're, I've, I've been astounded at the unwillingness of these people to want to learn um, the new science of peacemaking and mediation. They're just, it's astounding how unwilling they are to, to, to want to learn this stuff. So in some ways, then, elusive peace, you, you see, is still a major hurdle we have to overcome. It is. Um, I talk about a lot of things in the book, a lot about mediators, but I also talk about national attitudes, and I spend a chapter talking about how the United States is not a nation of peace, and I explain why. And we, we talk a lot about peace in, our, in, in this country, but um, we do not practice peace. And we don't practice peace in any way, shape, or form. And, and in fact, we're a nation of war, not a nation of peace. So, one of the, as I point out, one of the things that, for those of us who are interested in peace, if we really are interested in living, aspiring to the value of peace, which I think is a fundamental value of democracy and and of a free free republic, um, that we need to do something about that and stop electing people who believe in war and start electing people who who are willing to engage the enemy at a, at a different level than, than violence. And that's not to say that we don't need a military or a strong military defense. I mean, Remember, I'm a secondary black belt. I understand the need to protect oneself. But that is not our first option. It should never be our first option. And, you know, without getting too political, think about it this way. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are, but before we went into Iraq, President Bush did not do this. He did not come before the American people and say, I think there are weapons of mass destruction here and we need to go in and, and take out Saddam Hussein. By the way, it's going to cost us $2 trillion. We're going to have to raise taxes by 15% to, to pay for this, and we're going to have to uh, institute a draft in order to get uh, our military forces up to personnel strength to do this job correctly. Um, and I'm going to ask Congress to pass all those laws. Do you think the American people would have gone into Iraq if they'd known it was going to cost $2 trillion? Their taxes would have had to have been raised by 15%. We would have had to institute a military draft to, for the military personnel. We didn't have that debate. And that's because we had, had a leadership that lied to us. And we can't afford to do that anymore. We can't afford to elect people who are going to lie to us about the, the real consequences of the choices that we make. And, and it's a huge issue. And so in the book, we, it's, the book's designed to cause people to start asking these questions. And it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. Let's just understand what the consequences of our decisions are. 
if we need well, to go to war, it's going to it costs us a fortune. I mean, the, the United States funded the Libyan war. It was a hundred million dollars a month. Did anybody ever come to us, come to the taxpayers, and say, "Do you want to spend a hundred million dollars a month to liberate Libya?" Which, by the way, is probably going to result in a civil war, which it is. That's the problem. And, and, and it's, whether it's a spiritual level or a very practical physical level, we're not being leveled with. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lack of, of honesty and integrity right there. Absolutely. So we'll have to take our final break now, Doug, and we'll return in a few moments. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. Seventh Wave Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be Extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. And I have with me today Doug Knoll, who's talking about elusive peace and the challenges we face in trying to come to peaceful resolution. Doug, you're involved in, a, in a, a very different project in one sense, but with using the same skills. And I'd love uh, to hear you talk about and let our listeners know about it, which is the Prison of Peace. Tell us about that. The Prison of Peace project uh, is a pro bono project that I have been engaged in with a colleague of mine, another peacemaker and mediator, Laurel Coffer, uh, for the last two years in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which happens to be located in Central California. And we were actually invited in by a group of inmates who are life serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Basically, they are serving life sentences, they're LWAPs, life, life without possibility of parole because they're murderers. And they recognized that they are going to be in prison for the rest of their lives and they were tired of the violence. So they really wanted to learn some peacemaking skills to see if they couldn't change the nature of conflict resolution within their community and and we were I won't go through the whole story people can go to the website prisonofpeace.org um to learn the, how all this started so, so to make a long story short we uh started working with 17 women in um the early spring of 2010 to um and began to train them to become peacemakers and these are women who were emotionally shut down 
they had most of them had been extremely led extremely abused lives either through chemical addiction drug addiction alcohol addiction um, rape child molestation spousal battery I, I, none of these women came from what anybody would consider to be a healthy safe clean or spiritually evolved environment and of course it was the environment they came from that caused them to 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 kill another human being which under the way the laws are set up in California leads them to prison without ever being released. Um, and I had never been in prison before as a lawyer. I had not been involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, I didn't do criminal work. I did I litigated civil cases. So this was all a new, eye-opening, soul-wrenching experience for me. And um, it's been a pretty amazing journey. Today we have trained over 70 women as peacemakers, 37 of them we have certified as mediators. They have to go through, through 12 weeks of training, broken into two components, eight weeks and then four weeks. And if they do everything we ask them to do, we certify them as mediators. If they only go through the eight-week program, we certify them as mediators. We have also trained 15 women to train other women up to the peacemaking level, and they... Uh, are in the process of, they will have trained over 200 women, uh, additional women in the prison, to be peacemakers, and we will be going back. We go back in periodically and do mediation training to take the women who are peacemakers and want to become mediators. We take them through the four-week process of mediation training. It's a very intense process for the women. It's very intense for us. Uh, the the um, you know, it's 84 hours of classroom work plus a lot of clinical work so they actually get significantly more training than a beginning mediator would get in, in the free world. Um, and there have been some amazing stories that we've heard and witnessed <laughs> through this two years. Well, I'd love to hear about amazing. a couple of those, but what was it like at the very beginning for you going into this scenario? Well, it was, it was not too physically intimidating because obviously because of my martial arts background, uh, I don't worry too much about my physical safety. But it was emotionally it was emotionally intimidating because prisons are designed to be emotionally intimidating places uh, by physical design, and quite frankly, I had a lot of anxiety around whether or not the ideas that Laurel and I had around peacemaking would actually work. We had no clue about whether or not we could take a murderer and teach her to be a peacemaker. Um, all we knew is that we had had great success training other people how to be mediators and peacemakers um, but we didn't know whether it would work in a prison environment and so and it was stressful um, to, for us because we're dealing with women who are criminals convicted felons convicted murderers and to what degree would we be able to connect with them to relate to them to create empathic connections with them to help them gain the you know the understanding that it, of what it takes to be a mediator and remember i talked about all that multidisciplinary stuff earlier in the show about what it takes to be a mediator we have to teach them these women the practical aspects of this could we do it would they be open would the prison authorities allow us to do this once we got in they gave us a start but would they would they support us in this process a lot of unknowns a lot of anxiety and and it was exhausting, physically exhausting, to go into the prison, teach for a day, and then come out. We would be, we were just wrung out. So, as it turns out, it worked. 
Well, uh, us, you know, we, a, the women have significantly us. reduced violence in the prison. Last time we were in, which is a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were working with our trainers, and, and one of the trainers told us about how she stopped a riot dead in its tracks the night before. That was why she was so tired. Stopped a riot, huge riot. She stopped it just dead, and the prison guards didn't even know what was going on. They didn't even see her do it. Um, what, are the, what are the guards and administrators' reaction to the program that you're doing there? Well, it's mixed. Um, at the prison administration level, we've built a lot of trust uh, with the prison, with the higher administration officials, the wardens, uh, and they like the program. The, the program has gotten some notoriety, positive notoriety, so, of course, that reflects well on them. They look at it as being one of the most successful programs that, they, that they've had. Uh, that doesn't mean they're willing to fund it. It doesn't mean they're willing to do anything other than just let us con uh, Their support basically means we can continue to do what we're doing. <laughs> we're not creating any problems for them. Uh, we did actually get a letter from the warden uh, last fall thanking us at the end, stating that, that as a result of our work, the prison had seen a, a significant reduction in the violence. At the prison guard level, uh, they're basically, from what we can tell, our experience is the guards are divided into three into three groups. One group is extremely supportive of what we're doing and really encourages the women to take the training and to practice what they've learned. Uh, there's a group of guards, about a third, who are neutral on it. They're just in there collecting their paychecks and doing their job, and they really don't care. And then there's a third of the guards that are bitterly opposed and hate what we're doing. And, and they're mostly composed of Aryan Brotherhood people. Prison, Aryan Brotherhood is attracted to prison guard work. And so there's a, very, a fairly significant minority of prison guards who are members of the Aryan Brotherhood who um, believe it is their God-given duty to punish these women even further. And prison of peace is, is, is absolutely anti-thematic to them to the point that there's overt hatred directed towards um, towards the women who who are getting this training and practicing the principles of peace as we teach it. Um, so it's interesting. And it's obviously sir, the, uh, that contingent is, feels job-threatened because if we reduce violence, I mean, <laughs> you don't need as many prison guards. So tell us about uh, a transformative uh, situation, a woman that you've witnessed? Yeah, the story, the, we've had lots of them, but the story that I like to tell is, is early on in the training, we, we came into the room where we were doing the training, and one of our women was in the corner, and she was holding some papers, and she was sobbing quietly, and this was the beginning of the day. We had no idea what was going on, so we walked, kind of looked at each other and walked over and said, what's going on? And she told us this story. She said, I've been in prison for 20 years. Um, I have not. Um, I, uh, my son was born in prison. I've, just as I was coming to prison, I was pregnant. I delivered my son. He was taken away from me, and given to my sister, who has basically raised him. And uh, and uh, he has never really had me as his mother. It's been my sister. And I've written to him every week. Um, and I've never, ever, ever gotten a response from him, a telephone call from him, a Christmas card, nothing. I've gotten no response from him. I know he gets the letters because my sister tells me that. And he's 20 years old now. Um, I decided that I would write him, based on the training that you guys gave me, I, base, I decided that I would write a different kind of level, letter and use the skills that you have taught me. And then she said, and this is what happened, and she hand, shows us the letter, and she got her very first response in 20 years from her 20-year-old son. Wow. And it was an angry letter. Yeah. But she, had, she was able to use the peacemaking skills that we have taught her 
convert it into a written form, and do something to touch his heart in a way that compelled him to write back. And actually, he's come to visit, and they're in the process of a reconciliation. Oh, wonderful. So we're coming right up to the end of the show, so I'm going to have to finish there. But it's a great note to finish on and what can be achieved. So I really, really appreciate you doing this today, and I admire all the work that you're doing on behalf of humanity. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. So right up at the end of the show, there's a beautiful YouTube you should watch called Prison of Peace, which is very emotional, highlighting some of the women involved in this this program with, uh, with Doug. Next week, my guest will be Simran Singh, who is one of the lead hosts on Seventh Wave Network, and she will have a chance to tell her story on my show next Wednesday. Hope you'll tune in then. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a great week. This is Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.